Welcome to the Abodo Presents podcast. My name is Daniel Gudzel. For this podcast, we chat to Jed Finch from X-Frame to open the discussion around circular versus the linear economy and what that means. I'm lucky to have with me today Jed Finch. Jed's an award-winning PhD student based in Wellington. He's founder of X-Frame and a wildly successful TED Talk. Jed, great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks for the, the introduction. Jed, uh, just give us a quick overview of what X-Frame is. So coming out of a, a few years of research from the university, we saw the need um, in the building industry for a construction system that could facilitate circularity, so facilitate the circular economy. All our construction systems today rely on single-use fixings, adhesives, tapes, spray foams, lots of petrochemicals, um, lots of things that can't be recycled and things that aren't designed to be extracted from the building once we're finished with the building. And so X-Frame is a, a modular prefabricated construction system that uses plywood and it is designed specifically to enable not just the reuse of itself, but also facilitate the reuse of all of the other layers in a building envelope. So basically X-Frame has a whole lot of integrated fixing points that are all pre-positioned and we know exactly where they are. And so we can manufacture internal lighting products to clip on and clip off and we can also do that for the cladding products. One of the things, sort of the key design rationale, and it's in the name, the X-Frame, the reason for this is that we create a self-braced structure. And so the self-braced structure allows us to fix all of the claddings and linings in a way that doesn't mean that they're dependent or the frame is dependent on those materials being there. So we can create an entirely redundant structure that is basically can have any lining and any cladding system fixed to it easily without compromising or affecting the structural capabilities of the frame itself. And so that's at the development stage. I'm a PhD student. And so this is just coming through the, the research and development stage. And we're building prototypes and testing the, the product and then hoping to translate this into a real world business that can sell and, and create the sustainable circular economy building products that we need. Jed, you've done some amazing work. You're challenging the traditional construction methods. What drives you? What drives me? Uh so I think I had the unfortunate experience, obviously, of moving from my lovely family home in the country with my parents in the, in the deep south in central Otago in Alexandra. Um, and I moved up to Wellington to a, a very cold, miserable, uninsulated student flat. And so I've sort of had this incredible sort of two different views of, the, of what the built environment can be. You know, this lovely home and the lovely warm environment and then this rather cold, miserable damp, unpleasant experience. And so for me, it's all about knowing that we can do better and working from there. So I'm really driven by the fact that, you know, everyone deserves to, to live in a warm, dry home that they can call home. And I don't think that should be something that is, you know, only only for a select few. I think that should be for everyone. And so for me, it's all about how do we get to that point? And I'm in the the privileged position that I have the tools and the resources and now as I go through my education and training and research some of the expertise to be able to contribute to this problem that is building affordable and, and healthy and energy efficient and waste-free buildings. Yeah we've discussed this before Jed but it's a fairly big task. Um, let's just focus specifically on the circular economy because that's one of your key focuses. How can the circular economy make the world a better place? Obviously the circular economy is, is a 
fairly big call. It's a major disruption from the linear economy, which we operate in today. Obviously, the, the take, make, throw out economy where everything is in, starts its life as a new virgin material that we pull from the ground and then we use it once and, and we dispose of it and we don't think too much about the implications of that. So what the circular economy does, which is the area that really stimulates me to work in this area, is that it allows a transfer of wealth. And I know that's a, that's a fairly big claim, but what it's essentially doing is shifting the, the value of the material into a perpetual cycle. And so what we're enabling is that secondhand use of the material. And so no longer are you tied to the original price of the, of the material, right? That price of pulling it out of the ground and processing it and using it once. That secondhand material providing that there's been a deconstruction process or a circular process designed into it will retain its value. And so we can use that functional value of the product again, and that will be cheaper for other people. And so for me, it's all about, you know, starting to stretch out the utility of the materials that the circular economy enables us to do. You know, if you look at one of the the issues that we see in in modern construction is that, you know, it's often just too expensive to insulate properly or, or to insulate to a level that we should be simply because of the material cost. But if we're operating in an entirely circular economy then there should be an abundancy of materials and indeed uh, insulation materials should be at such a, a cost simply because there'll be so many of them and they'll be so well recycled and their value will be kept so well that everybody will be able to insulate their home and that's sort of the big picture stuff obviously on a on a micro scale or sorry a macro scale the circular economy has you know huge impacts on on decision making both for consumers for for the end of the chain, but also for the manufacturers and the the material suppliers. I think there's been some great work obviously done in terms of carbon accounting and and carbon management and carbon zero of businesses, but there's often this sort of concession that we can't do that for our products. No, our products are too special and too hard to truly achieve a sustainable status in terms of carbon and end-of-life recovery. But I think the circular economy brings that right into the limelight and, and questions the very priorities that we place on that you know and says that well if we can address end of life waste management then there's huge potential and flow on effects to both reduce the environmental impacts but also make materials more affordable like i was saying before i think also with the circular economy uh, you have to look at the holistic benefits so the circular economy basically came out of the industrial blue economy it was called and then before that came out of ideas by Stuart brand in the 1990s who talked about buildings as layers and then even before that the the whole earth catalog spaceship earth all of these these seminal texts in sustainability that were published between the 1960s and the 1980s and they they came out and they made a big splash and then obviously it was taken on board by the United Nations and reports were published, but we never really saw the groundswell that we hoped, you know, never really took off. And so um, the circular economy is almost the mature version of this. It packages all these ideas up into a holistic view of, of making or separating our need for resources and utility and materials from environmental devastation and destruction, I should say. So, you know, that's things like uh, reducing soil erosion, reducing groundwater contamination, reducing acidification, uh, reducing carbon emissions, improving erosion rates, improving natural animal habitat environments. So there's a huge flow on effects that um, achieving circularity does have. And so it definitely will make the world a better place and every step that we take towards circularity is already um, having paths and and having benefits. I think the... 
The complexity surrounding the circular economy is perhaps one of the issues that people have, both from a product point of view and then obviously the design and construction. Sell it to us, Jed. Tell us what a ideal world would look like from a construction point of view, and if we if we look at it through a circular economy lens. Yeah, that this is the dream, right? So, to to create this pure ecosystem where where we will manufacture materials either from low carbon, easily renewable sources, or we will continuously retain the value of products through their life. So what does that look like? That's the obviously the, the academic status, but what does that look like in the built environment? Well, it looks like a collaboration in the building industry that we just simply don't see today. Uh, interchangeability, interoperability of components and systems and modules that we just don't see today. So it's the things like uh, standardization of, of building elements, building sizes, materials, complete transparency of supply chains that mean that all of these systems link together to create the buildings that are truly, we call them material banks, um, simply temporary stores of functional materials that have extremely high reuse value that can be deconstructed and modified when they're no longer needed in that current form, transformed into something that meets current demands and then obviously that transformation has within it and the capability to be transformed again. So what does this look like in terms of actual products and systems? Well, obviously, with the increasing densification and urbanization of the building industry, we need you know medium density construction solutions that work within the circular economy that are, like I said, completely modular and and integrated into a into higher level of thinking. And so when I say modular, I don't mean everything looks the same. I simply mean that within the modular controls, we can create custom elements and custom details, but they all um, add up to overall rules and conditions of construction that operate within the circular economy bounds. So what that is going to look like in medium density construction, it's obviously there's a debate whether that will be timber or steel. Timber obviously has the huge advantages of being a carbon sequestering material. And so when we think uh, medium density timber construction in the circular economy, we, we often think cross laminated timber. Obviously, one of the concerns with cross laminated timber is that it has an adhesive in it. So it's technically a, a composite material. Um, and so the other argument here is, well, if we use aluminium or a steel product, that comes at a, at a higher upfront carbon cost, but um, it is infinitely recyclable. However, of course, with that recycling comes more energy costs and more carbon costs. And so at this stage, we would say uh, mass timber construction is best and hopefully the, the not too far away onset of bio-based adhesives that are not petrochemically derived, that product will hold even higher um, environmental credentials. And then operating around that will be, you know, glazing systems that are not made to order, <laughs> that are, you know, completely off the shelf, that f operate within the modules, but that can be changed um, when needed and can be enlarged or customized to create distinctive architectural spaces. I think often a, a huge part of this that we forget is that to be really successful in a circular economy, it's all about enabling the end user, the consumer to feel a sense of stewardship for the materials and so obviously one of the concerns is that if you design all these systems but they don't consider the end user or, or indeed they don't consider the builder and the people actually having to recycle and recover those materials they will never get to circularity and so a really important part of this is working with builders and working with those end users to understand what they need to achieve circularity 
and I think that's where that's where my research in particular comes into this vision of this future circular economy is that we deal with the macro scale, the really small scale stuff. So within these larger CLT, beautiful circular economy, medium density buildings, we would use a product like X-Frame to do the internal fit out in a way that allows not necessarily a skilled builder, but actually a homeowner or a, or a building owner to go in and make the changes to that space. You know, I think we've obviously just gone through a pandemic and still going through it. And we've seen the need for rapidly reconfigurable spaces, you know, spaces that can be broken down into smaller sections to ensure people's privacy and, and ensure um, hygiene practices. And that's what flexible construction does. That's what X-Frame does. And I mean, if you look at light gauge, steel, roll formed internal partitions, which is the predominant product in the market today, it's absolute garbage in terms of recoverability and recyclability. There, There is none. And so again, if we're addressing this problem through scales, we've got the larger elements in CLT, we've got the smaller elements in a modular system like X-Frame, and all of those linings and services are operating within these conditions. One of the things that's often overlooked, obviously, is services. There's great potential, and there are products available today that deal with uh, modular service connections. So electrical, for example, rather than requiring an electrician to come in and hardwire all of your electrical systems, there's plug and play systems that are already available on the market that would allow further that idea of adaptability, reconfiguration and reuse right at the at the lowest common denominator, the end user. And so it's all of these technologies coming together to, to create these buildings that will quite frankly be like nothing else we've ever seen. In their modularity, they will be completely unique. They will be what the users require and they will use material combinations that we simply don't consider today. You know, we, we're often too worried about do we meet NZS, you know, 3604, do we meet uh, AS1, A2? Do we achieve the minimum requirements of durability versus are we specifying a material that is ecologically sensitive? Are we specifying the fixings of that material in a way that is considered from a circular point of view? And so all of these um, things will come together to create lovely, functional, really pleasant places to live that are good for us. That's that's the vision. <laughs> to condense that to a certain extent, you're going to have a comfortable place to live. It's going to be warm, but you've also got that flexibility to modify your living space in the future. And you'll also, in an ideal world, you'll, you'll also be the person that's put it together. You'll understand that. And because you've done that, you've created perhaps an affinity with the materials that you're using. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, it's, I can't remember the specific, the phrase that I usually use, but it's about um, making, you know, almost uh, associating the value of the material and the design with the end user, with the people that are actually using the space. And so by getting them to understand the materials that they live in and, and the capabilities of that, they feel exactly like you said, then just an, an association and affinity with the materials and they feel a greater responsibility to steward that. And so, for example, when they see a project being demolished, they'll say, well, actually, no, I know there's value in that. There was value for me in that. And so they will look for future opportunities in terms of circularity and, and recovery. You mentioned COVID obviously changing people's perspectives and, and perhaps changing people's needs to a certain extent. The government's changed the Building Act here recently in New Zealand to allow these sort of smaller sleepouts and cabins up to 30 square metres to be built without a building consent. Do you think this opens up an opportunity to get circular economy construction perhaps into the market? Yes, as uh, the, the short answer. Obviously, this change is, is, is more complicated than that. So they've done it 
obviously to to speed up that city infill building you know basically in large uh, urban sections where there will often be wasted space in the form of just a lawn or, or something inefficient like that the councils want to see you know these being used as granny flats as accessory dwelling units where we can increase the density without having to actually take over more greenfield sites and so that makes a lot of sense and so that the reason for the law change you know is to speed that process up so we don't have to get the building consents however it still does mean a, a licensed building practitioner needs to be involved um, and so we can't just go out and build the most crazily exciting unengineered recyclable building we still have to operate within you know best practice guidelines engineering and follow the sensibilities and, and get these things built properly but it does allow us to be more aggressive on that timeline obviously there is now um, we can do as many 10 square meter units as we wanted really without any implications but the jump from 10 square meters to even 11 square meters is enormous in, ter- in terms of a challenge now that's been obviously weakened or, or reduced slightly simply because there is no need to, to go through that council step obviously if the council is listening to this we are working to follow um, of course all building consent and building to best practice and, and particularly building to the fundamentals of the New Zealand building code one of the challenges obviously when building for circularity is you're not just switching a product out you're essentially replacing the entire logic that goes into construction and particularly the approved solutions and the acceptable solutions of the New Zealand building code so what I mean for example is you know, we will replace the fixing configuration of a cavity batten and the cladding and the internal lining. And so when you've done that, you've also affected the product's durability, you've affected the manufacturing guidelines for specification. (laughs) Uh, And so there's a whole lot of flow on effects that we have to deal with that will all actually need at large scale construction. They will need, you know, engineering sign-off, product certification, product declaration. But this 30 square meter rule change allows us to test these ideas at a smaller, more safer residential scale. And we can actually prove over time, obviously, through built examples that we are not just meeting the minimum requirements, but we are well and truly exceeding them. And obviously bringing a higher level of build quality along with it, given that we're using digital fabrication and and all these modern methods of manufacturing. I think there's also obviously another component to this rule change. And that's what many people are concerned about is that we're just going to end up with a shanty town. And I think that that's really important to consider, obviously, as someone who's trying to bring a new product into the world, we want to see X-Frame used in its full capability. And it sort of relates to what I was saying before. The best thing for the environment is not, you know, micro scale installations. The best thing is actually medium scale construction where it's medium density. People are living together in good communities and they have all these services they need close at hand. And so we want to be able to use the frame in those instances and use the technology in those places. But for us, the the 30 square meter or, or up to 30 square meters it's a key step it's a it's a stepping stone to validate the technology to validate the capabilities of the system to get builders in and using it and understanding it and giving us feedback so we can make improvements and then working up towards this this higher volume production and so i think it's a it's a great change i'm sure we'll see a lot of interesting innovative construction i'm not sure um if the government is quite ready for it, but I think the industry is ready for it. <laughs> okay, I mean, what I was sort of getting at was, do you see these sort of smaller sleepouts or cabins being a way that we can trial some of these circular economy building methods? I mean, is it a way for potentially training wheels for people to get a feel for how these systems might work? Yeah, exactly. So what we can do now is basically 
bring these technologies and and new materials and and new combinations of putting things together to consumers and to end users and get them looking at and understanding just how cool this is and and what it means for them you know they can have a much healthier working space you know there'll be no toxic materials they can for example if they've created a, a 10 square meter office space and they got it fitted out but the electrical stuff was in the wrong place no problem they'll be able to clip off the internal wall linings and move the electrical to the right place and, and away we go you know so this ability to disseminate circular technologies and get users excited about it at this scale is really really useful uh, it'll allow them to see the value and, and to be able to hopefully take this small snippet of circularity as a precedent for what they could do in a, in a larger house. And it may even be a stepping stone for that. I guess that's quite, quite a good opportunity. As you say, there's, there's risks either way, but it's certainly a way that we can um, get to touch and feel and perhaps even assemble some of these types of constructions ourselves, of course, with the registered builder supervision. You've touched on this whole, uh, you know, COVID thing already, but do you see any lasting changes coming from this experience in terms of construction and, and design? Yeah, it's a, a good question. I mean, as a as a, a 20, 25 year old university student, my um, obviously understanding of the impact of the economics of this whole um, event are a little bit handicapped. I, I don't obviously have the full life experience to put that in, in context, but I think from my position, I can't see major changes, to be honest. We may go through this, obviously, this economic downturn, or there may be some economic implications. But if you look at the construction pipeline and the buildings that we need and the population growth, there will be a you know continued construction and for a large part, we'll be building exactly what we built before, which is a shame in many respects, right? We'll be building urban sprawl, you know, cheap um, state housing with with poor amenities and poor um, social infrastructure. And that's by and by, I think. There will be implications, I think, in the in the more of the commercial space. We're seeing it already. So I was involved with the design of a co-working space here in Wellington using X-Frame. So obviously for a co-working space, X-Frame's attractive because it allows them to reconfigure based on the tenancy demands. So they, for example, may have a, a slightly larger tenancy of 12 to 15 people in. They might move out and a group of just small groups of five might move in. And so they want to be able to reconfigure the walls to create privacy for those people but not have to obviously invest in a complete retrofit of the space. And they had designed this entire office pre-COVID and then um, were just about to enter develop design and then we had a lockdown and then they thought, well, actually, you know, a co-working space post-pandemic is a little bit challenged. You know, there's people are going to want privacy screens, they're going to be able to want to wash, but also it's just simply the fact that a lot more of our communication is is now by um, Zoom, by video chat. So they were thinking, well, how do we enable the space to work in that way? Little tweaks, you know, the increase of calling booths, the increase of privacy screens, a significant increase in the use of soft materials, obviously, I'm sure you'll be familiar with this, you know, often offices just become literally hard lined boxes. And so they'll be reverberant and really quite unpleasant. And so one way to enable people to take lots of video calls beside each other is to obviously to install a lot of soft materials so that you dull down the space so the reverberance is killed and, and people feel more comfortable having conversations. So there's a whole lot of, I think, stuff in the commercial space that will have impact. I mean, even from a university point of view, this whole virtual classroom has been incredibly disruptive. I now have to go to university to do my research and then come home to do my teaching, which is a little bit counterintuitive. So hopefully we have a built response to that soon, which will be in the form of modular teacher-only spaces 
where they can stand up and give a virtual lecture or, or something of, of that measure. I think, yeah, from, from that point of view, there's almost two pathways and, and one will be what does the work environment look like and how much does that go into the home environment? But in terms of housing our people, you know, there's still an urgent need for housing and, and I think we all just hope that can be high quality, sustainable housing and not just bottom of the rung cookie cutter stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the next step for you, Jed? What are you moving? What are you, where are you working to? Yeah, so we've, we've got the support of a company in Australia called Innovise, who are a commercialization expert, and they basically help scale company growth. And obviously in the building sector, when you're trying to completely reinvent the wheel, I guess we'll call it, you know, we, we need all the help we can get. And so the benefit of, of that they bring is that they have expertise in the building sector in Australia. And so they allow us to create some connections, particularly in the manufacturing space. And so what we're looking at is how do we produce X-Frame in a way that is much faster and much cheaper because that's one of the holdups at the moment is obviously we're using CNC routing and that has its own issues in terms of cost. And so if we can come up with a quick solution there using Innovise and their connections, that would be great. And then we're also looking at building a way for the industry to interact with X-Frame. Obviously, one of the key barriers in the past to using prefabricated construction has been how do you actually get the architects and designers involved and understanding the rules and limitations of the product? And so what we've decided to do is go ahead and build a, a Revit family that will not just be a sort of a dumb Revit family that you might see for a window, for example. This will be a sophisticated tool that will allow you to schedule, quantify, build out, design, visualize all of the X-Frame components and will have automatic controls in it that snap to the modules and allow you to place doors and windows in modules. And it's basically a, a rule-based build in the Revit building software and then alongside that we also want a consumer facing product an online platform in which you know if a consumer does want this customized strangely shaped 30 square meter accessory dwelling unit we can do that too and we can save them a lot of money by going straight to the consumer so that, that's sort of the immediate vision is is getting x-frame out there there's a few more steps to go obviously we've got to do some more structural testing we've got to improve the um, the design slightly to make it more efficient to put together and then we're building prototypes so we've got an australian prototype going ahead which is really exciting it's in adelaide it is our first fully consented signed off engineered and planning approved building which is a big step when you're trying to bring a new building technology into the world particularly one that doesn't have much precedent and so that will go ahead in, in South Australia. The foundations are being dug as we speak. And hopefully by the end of June, we'll have a building, which is great. It'll be about 20 square metres. <laughs> so again, we're operating in that smaller scale still, but it's an important next step. And then we're, we're looking for some willing and exciting clients to be able to jump on board with that. That's great, Jed. So if people want to connect with you, how do they, um, how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So we have a website, xframe.com.au. Had to sell out to the Australian, sorry. So that's there. If you go on there, we have contact information for me, but also you can sign up to a, just a, like a, an updates list that we have, but you'll also be able to see all the, all the latest work that we've done, latest prototypes. And we're also working to push out a circular economy construction guideline that is quite detailed. We want to look at a whole range of materials within that and a whole lot of different choices that builders, architects, and designers have to make and help them make those decisions from a circular point of view. So stay tuned for that. Great. Thank Thank you, Jed. No worries. Thanks for listening to this podcast, brought to you as part of the Abodo Presents series. 